the average return on investment for every pound that we have spent into this space is about 3.6 years. It pays for itself like almost nothing else in healthcare. It's one of the best bets you can make. Hello and welcome to Clinical Changemakers, the podcast that explores vital lessons in healthcare leadership, innovation, and so much more. I'm your host, Dr. Jono, and today on the show we have Dr. Nick Watts. Dr. Watts is a public health doctor and the UK's National Health Services Chief Sustainability Officer and is responsible for the NHS's commitment to deliver the world's first net zero healthcare service. Dr. Nick Watts, welcome to the podcast. Hello, nice to be here. Um, sorry it's early in the morning for you. Uh, glad it's towards the end of my day over here. <laughs> So uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about everything that's going on in the NHS, realizing the goal of net zero by 2040. Um, but before we do, I'll be really interested to learn a little bit more about your background, uh, where you grew up, and what was your journey uh, into healthcare? I hope it's very obvious uh, that I grew up, from my accent, um, in Perth, Western Australia, down sort of far, far side of the world, trained in medicine. Uh, and I think pretty early on, realized I was interested in a lot of that stuff, love a lot of the clinical stuff, love the love the clinical colleagues you get to work with, love the sort of collegiality that comes from it, love the patients, but but so much of what you deal with is happening outside of the four walls of a hospital or a clinic. And so uh, sort of fairly early on started to explore what that might look like, what different careers and different directions sort of there might look like, sort of messed around with all sorts of things. Um, worked for the World Health Organization for a little bit. They have a climate change and health team up in uh, Geneva. Worked for a few different NGOs, uh, something called the Global Climate and Health Alliance. Worked for the Lancet, um, ran a research center, something called the Lancet Countdown, um, looking at looking at health and climate change. And then eventually stumbled into the NHS. And I think they probably realized a little too late um, that I was Australian uh, and have been here now for about four, five years or so. Uh, when was it first coming to you around the, the relationship between climate and how we provide healthcare? Yeah, it's a good um, question. We don't think enough about that, right? Like we don't think enough about the idea that talk a lot about the social determinants of health. We don't talk enough, I don't think, about the, the fact that a lot of that is underpinned on sort of ecosystem services, right, on environmental resource, whether it's just something simple like clean air or, you know, frankly, a healthy diet, nutritious food, that stuff comes from somewhere um, through to like a life that's not constantly impeded by angry, grumpy, dangerous, fatal heat waves or storms or floods or drought um, and everything else that, that flows from that. It sort of turns out that when you think about it seriously, the foundations of, you know, the healthcare systems we built, the National Health Service, 75 years old this year, uh, they were built with an assumption that the climate was stable. They were built with an assumption that all of this stuff was going to be what it was for the rest of time. And it turns out that that's wrong, right? It turns out that we're at 1.22 degrees above pre-industrial average today. It turns out that the number of NHS facilities on high-risk flood floodplains is set to double in the next couple of years. In fact, by 2030, everywhere you look, climate change and a changing climate uh, is impacting on health and our ability to, to deliver health services, Li like kind of literally everywhere you look. Um, it's pretty hard to find a place where it doesn't directly interact. What you're talking to there with the use of language around systems, right? We, we talk about a healthcare system uh, and we throw that word around uh, a lot and, and uh, don't really blink at it, but that system sits within 
a bigger system, an ecological system, a climate system. And so I think for some reason, we drew too much of a hard border around some of these types of systems without recognizing how they interact with each other. That, that, that's right. And very, very quickly, the planet reminds you, right? Seven of the hottest days on record, all seven of the hottest days on record occurred within the first week of July this, this year. It's a pretty terrifying thing, thing when you start to think about it. There's a, there's a flip side to that, which is worth remembering, to, to the extent that human and environmental systems are inextricably linked and negative changes in one, climate change, negatively impacts human health and human systems. The response also has a positive impact, right? So often a lot of what you might want to do, kind of through the inverse mechanism, ends up cleaning up the air, it ends up directly tackling health inequalities, it ends up sort of, you know, landing you in a urban environment uh, or a rural environment where you're in a more livable city, right? More green space, easy to get around, more accessible. In the case of the NHS, often, almost always, a focus on high value care, a focus on prevention, a focus on public health. And so that, that mechanism, the same problem that's got us here, I think also provides us with a bit of a route out as well. Route out? I think I say route in Australia. And I think what I'm hearing as well is around how, you know, we, we can create these positive feedback loops. And actually, many of them are just good, quality, efficient, accessible, equitable care. So in some sense, it's, it's just a more of a reorientation than necessarily inventing a completely new paradigm. What, what would you say to that? Um, interesting. I think I might change my answer depending on the day of the week. And uh, how many coffees I've had, maybe if I've had a beer or not. Um, I, I get a little bit torn. Honestly, I get a little bit torn between saying, well, no, no, hold on. This is a pretty fundamental shift. We are talking about the idea that there are limits to what we can do. And those limits are physical. They are environmental, right? You just simply isn't enough wood, isn't enough atmosphere, isn't enough, you know, uh, of a carbon budget um, before, before climate change comes back and, you know, really causes trouble for you. So no, that's a really fundamental rethink of uh, of all of the big isms in the world from capitalism to consumerism. I think I sort of feel that deep, deep down in my heart. And then I find that relatively difficult. Honestly, I find it relatively difficult to act on that because you are almost taking on the entirety of the world everywhere if that's your like target. And hence, then I default back to to, your, to the sort of underlying part of your question, which is actually there are just quite a lot of things that we should be doing here that we can just get on with today that are really, really quite simple, really straightforward and not completely throwing everything up in the air. And I probably, if it's a Saturday or a Sunday and I'm kicking back thinking about something like this, uh, would err towards the first half of my answer. And if I'm at work getting on with stuff and need to be able to demonstrate that, hey, we've reduced our carbon and we've done it day by day, year by year, um, focus on the on the latter. Is that enough of a muddled answer? <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that that honesty because I think um, all too often we do talk in in absolutes. You know, this is the way of seeing the world, or this is the way of fixing things. And I think it's refreshing to to touch on those tensions, uh, that shift and change, and and uh, recognise that uh, we all haven't perfectly landed on an answer. Uh, but at least if we've got the common direction, uh, then, then sometimes those answers start to become more and more clear as, as time goes on. 
I want to jump back to some parts of your early career. Uh, I know you got involved in a number of organizations in the climate space. What did you learn in that very beginning with how you engaged with people, how you built uh, alliances and, and, and navigated conversations about climate and health? Number one, I think I would say the world had spent too long, has continued to spend too long talking about climate change as though it is something that's going to affect polar bears, as though it's something that is going to uh, affect, you know, trees and icebergs and those things only, right? We don't spend enough time talking about the idea that climate change actually does look like a kid with silent asthma, which is one of the most terrifying things for, you know, any nurse, doctor or, or parent. Um, and that's tangible and that's really real and far, far, far more visceral than uh, parts per million of CO2 equivalent up in the atmosphere where, you, you know, it's sort of pretty intangible stuff you're, you're talking about there. So I think, number one, we have to think pretty seriously about the way that we talk about this, communicating that this isn't something that is off in 2100. It isn't something that is uh, off in a country far, far away, and it isn't some sort of intangible concept. It's something that affects livelihoods and life, lives today in our local community. I think, yeah, I mean, you asked a little bit about co coalition building. One of the tough things about climate change is it affects everything everywhere. And so the response is often something that involves everyone everywhere, which we're not very good at. Hey, we're not, we're not very good at multidisciplinary, cross-disciplinary stuff. We're very, very siloed. Um, the, the Lancet Countdown, uh, this research collaboration I was talking about, um, we had with us, 60, 70 of the world's best academics, um, engineers, philosophers, lawyers, economists, doctors, um, uh, hydrologists, atmospheric physicists, all sorts of people, right? Like kind of pretty much every discipline you could imagine. And my God, we did not speak the same language. It just, it took us like a serious amount of time to get to know each other, to learn about each other's worlds and each other's thresholds of evidence and what we were and weren't comfortable with. Um, that, that stuff, to be honest, we had quite a few blow ups early on in the process and it really wasn't until maybe year one or year two had sort of come and gone that we actually started to become friends. And then once we were friends and we like, kind of like you said, we were aware that we were all moving in the same direction, pulling, we just came at this from different places. I think then we got, we got going, but one of our mistakes were, was, and one of the things we learned was that we tried to move too quickly, too early. And often with this stuff, you have to really take time to invest in those like personal relationships and were there any key sort of activities or uh, ways of working that that collaboration and, and partnerships were able to be realized yeah that's a good question um honest honestly i think sometimes messing it up was like pretty important right like sometimes letting things boil over a little bit and like people get pretty frustrated and sort of just letting it get to that point where everyone had to turn around and say, okay, well, what just went wrong then? We need to, you know, do a bit of a post-mortem on this. That that stuff was probably more important. It was uncomfortable, but more important than, than we recognized at the time. There's no substitute for time spent, you know, over lunch and time spent in a pub in the evening. Um, there's no substitute for deciding that if we're going to spend hours and hours and hours, thousands of hours together per year, we're going to have to be friends as we go about this stuff as well. I think that was that was pretty important. And I, I actually genuinely think we had lots of areas as we were going through, you know, covering all sorts of stuff from uh, peak oil and energy transitions that are complexity questions to 
phase out dates or phase in dates for fourth generation nuclear thorium to, you know, weird basic physiology questions about at what point stuff just gets way too hot, no matter how much, you know, cooling you have around you. And we would have to find things where we would just agree to disagree because we were often touching on things where just different fields thought different things and they'd come to different conclusions based on different starting points, probably. And we would have to sort of almost acknowledge each other's expertise, acknowledge that we weren't going to be able to come to consensus on this and either just embrace the diversity or just park it and leave it and move on, which I, I, I actually think a lot of sustainability and climate change does a really rubbish job of it. You, you sort of, you talked a little bit about how we can get a little bit pure sometimes with this and we can say, no, it's either this or it's nothing. And like, you know, rarely are there, are there important things in the world where there is only one right way to do things, you know, things are usually pretty complex. And so we, we would have to do a lot of that, which I think um, is not natural, right? We don't normally do that, but, um, but, but that helped a lot too. So not letting, you know, the good become the enemy of perfect with building those coalitions. I think you've just summarized what I took six minutes to say and yeah, in a breath, but yes. <laughs> so with this, with this group, I'm, I'm really curious, you know, you've created this, this foundation of, of experts. Uh, what was the output from that group and then uh, what is going forward uh, with that group? So I sort of broadly think of uh, the health and climate change world as having three, maybe three and a half, four phases to it. The first phase was almost the first 20 years or so, where frankly, there were two or three or four people saying, hey, this might be a problem, guys, we should think about researching this. But no one was really taking it in the health healthcare community seriously, not at any significant level. Around like 2005, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 sort of thing, um, mid, mid to late 2000s. I think we started to transition a little bit into this sort of advocacy phase where we actually started to get a little bit more traction and you started to slowly, slowly see some of the mainstream parts of the profession, right? And, and the Lancet is obviously one of them, the British Medical Journal, the Royal Medical and Nursing Colleges, you know, these sort of big august medical associations across the world starting to say, hey, we care about this. We should think about this. Maybe let's, you know, we're not quite sure if we know enough about it yet, but we can certainly put out, you know, some macro policy statement of caution kind of thing. And so you started to see these guys start to engage, and that was a little bit of a turning point. The second phase is is then where this Lancet countdown, I think, became important. And that's where you sort of got that initial buy-in, but people now have evidence questions, right? And the healthcare profession loves to move through evidence. And they would like to know precisely how bad is it going to be, precisely where and why should I be concerned? What should my adaptive response look like? What are my triage options? What are my, uh, what are the things I need to do in the first half hour? What are the things I need to do in the you know first two hours and the first four hours? And so the demand became almost exclusively about that evidence. And so the Lancet Countdown was one of a whole bunch of big academic collaborations out across the world that were trying to answer that. Honestly, I actually think we've moved on from that phase and we've almost got to the point where, where the healthcare profession is caught up with the rest of the world. I think the work that the NHS is doing now and other healthcare systems around the place are doing is no longer in that advocacy phase, no longer in that evidence generation phase, now squarely in the delivery phase, squarely in the, okay, we're fully on board. We need to run. We know we need to run as fast as we can. Let's talk about how we do this. I guess I can hear from from the way that you talk about these things. What's what's great about having that that clear 
uh, phase shift is that we no longer have to get stuck and muddled uh, in the kind of you know analysis paralysis type of of um, thinking where we can just talk about uh, solutions, actions to take tomorrow, uh, those kinds of things. Before we talk about the NHS and, and uh, what you guys have been doing uh, in particular, I'd be curious, what was the transition like for you uh, personally and professionally moving into this role as a Chief Sustainability Officer at the NHS? I don't know if I've ever given that a huge amount of retrospective thought, but I suspect the answer is tougher than you know I, I expected it would have been. All this stuff is, is tough. Why, why did I find that particularly tough? I, I pro- probably because you are moving or I was moving from a phase where I got to do the advocacy but not have to care too much about just how tough some of the implementation would be or I got to wait and move at the pace of academia but not have to be pressured by things that needed decisions immediately into a world in the NHS where you know the sorts of questions we're asking, they need answers ideally today, and if not by tomorrow, then we're going to have to take a pretty educated expert guess. But they can't afford to wait for a year for the collaboration to form, for the funder to give the university the money to hire a postdoc to, you know, write the paper and then wait another six months for it to go through, you know, peer review and publication. Um, and so the, the speed, I think, was was probably something that I I didn't expect um, and and has been uh, has I've, like I've loved it to be honest has been has been really really great. I think I I think one of the other things we have found which has been interesting is there are a lot of people working in this space in the sort of advocacy and evidence and academia academic space. There are not that many people working in the delivery space. So the total amount of actual knowledge of, of what there is in terms of what you need to do and what works what doesn't relatively limited and the total number of people you can count on to come and join your team when you're properly upscaling pretty damn limited as well so we had to spend quite a bit of time in fact building that team up um and if you look at the team four seconds ago they weren't part of the health and climate change world they were either part of mainstream health policy or they were part of mainstream uh sort of climate change policy and they've had to come and they've had to learn the other half and get to know each other and that that again has you know has taken time, been a little tougher, I think, than um, than maybe maybe I thought it I thought it would have been. In this role as a leader, obviously communication is such a vital uh, skill. What has been your approach to ensure that you communicate effectively? Absolutely critically, you use the use the phrase analysis paralysis, which I which I quite like. Um, if you're not careful, you can try and focus on tackling biodiversity and eutrophication and deforestation and climate change and all of the different nine planetary boundaries and different ways they interact and you can focus on all the stuff you need to do off in 2050 and i can promise you you will achieve nothing because i can promise you you will confuse yourself i'm already confused trying to do everything at once Um, i i think there's a real need in this space to focus on the things that you definitely can do focus on the things that you know you can achieve and that you know that you can achieve pretty quickly, right? That have quick return on investment, that are sensible things that are going to pay back quickly, build up a bit of momentum, right? Like start on some of the simple things that save some money, demonstrate success, demonstrate it was fun, demonstrate people were smiling, demonstrate there's a cost saving. And once you build that momentum up, then you can take on some of the bigger stuff. But if you try and start, I just remember talking to someone about, oh God, I'm really worried about the NHS targets and we don't have 100% clarity over what things are going to look like in 2039 
And their response was, yeah, but do you know what the next two years are going to look like? And I said, yeah, sure, we can know that. And they said, good, go start on that. And make sure you are thinking about the future, but don't let the fact that you don't know the last step stop you from starting today. With the people that you're working with in your team, I understand your team's grown quite a lot. How do you how do you work as a leader within the team? You know, what are the sorts of you know skills or approaches that you deploy to to motivate and uh, engage everybody and and make sure that uh, you know everybody's um, at the end of the day able to uh, to hold the head up high and and, and move this uh, this mission forward. Something funny about the word leader that I just like I don't love and I don't know why <laughs> it might it might be the Australian in me, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll answer your question nonetheless. Um, I think, God, I think it's important that people are passionate about this stuff, that they care about this stuff, that you have an environment where everyone knows what, what we're doing, the direction we're going, the rough pace that we're going in, why we're doing it. And then once they've got that, that they're pretty damn autonomous, that they are able to, you know, take care of. I was in fact talking to someone just before about our team. I, I am rarely telling our team what I want them to do. Often what's happening is they are already running 10 steps ahead of me and they will come to me and say, Nick, I need your help with this thing. And they're telling me what they want me to do sort of thing. And they're, they're expert in their own areas of medicines, decarbonization or, or, or hospital sort of clinical physical estate decarbonization or clinical transformation. Um, and I think that's pretty important. So I guess I would, I would call that autonomy, right? Um, once you got that sense of direction, that there's a bit of, there's a lot of autonomy there. I think to be honest though, the most important thing is that this work is tough and it can be pretty damn depressing. It can be pretty hard. Um, you're often talking about some pretty like, you know, end of worldy kind of stuff. Um, if you're not, if you're not careful because everyone cares so much, they work damn hard on this. And so by far the most important thing is that you're doing it with friends that you're doing it with people that you trust, that you have a bit of love for, um, that you can laugh together, that you can, you know, when someone is not having a good time, that the entire team rallies around them and says, hey, how can we help? Um, you need to take a break, mate. And I, I think that sense of sort of a bit of fun and love is probably the, the single most important thing to create in a team. I'm like so ridiculously proud of everyone in our team and how like, how expert they are and how passionate they are and all that stuff's great. But I just love how much they love each other, how much respect they have for each other. It's, it's, it's a really special place to work. I'd love for us to talk about the NHS now. How big is the NHS? Uh, I know you employ uh, quite a lot of people. And why has the NHS actually decided to take this on? Um, big is the answer. Uh, 1.4 million healthcare professionals, fifth largest organization in the world, second to, I think, like, the US and the Chinese military and maybe like the India East Rail Company and Walmart or something like that. Like, you know, really big, roughly 40% of public sector power consumption in this country, 36% of emissions, um, about 32, 34 megatons of carbon. So roughly the same size carbon wise as the entire country of Denmark or Croatia, so a medium to small size country. Pretty impressive place to place to work pretty passionate place to work the why i think i break down into three reasons 75 years ago i already said it's our it's our birthday um we were created with a pretty simple goal 
provide high quality care for all now and for future generations. And it's sort of been on the you know letterhead and at the top of the door um, everywhere you go since the NHS was created. And it turns out that you just cannot do that unless you tackle climate change. It turns out that so immense is the shift in temperature patterns, the fatal heat waves, the floods, that you simply can't unless you take some of this on. And like, give them some credit, the NHS is full of some pretty good health professionals, public health professionals, scientists who know that, see that, and say, yeah, we need to respond to this. That That's the first reason. Se- second reason is because every time we've done it, we've saved money. Every time we have tried to tackle some part of this, we have managed to improve care for our patients. We've managed to, uh, I've already sort of talked at the broadest possible level, but we're often talking about either energy efficiency measures out across our estate and our vehicles. We're talking about trying to move away from care that is low value for our patients that you know may even occasionally be causing a little bit of harm. Um, we're moving away from things like polypharmacy, making sure that we are investing in interventions that you know are genuinely good for, for our patients. And that stuff saves money for the NHS as well. The, the third reason, and I think this is maybe the most important, if you go and ask our 1.4 million staff, hey, what do you guys care about? What do you want to see us do more of? 91% of the NHS shouts back at you that they want to work for an organization that lives up to their own values. They want to work for an organization that is directly tackling climate change. A bunch of them signed an oath. First, do no harm. What's even cooler is that they want to be a part of that. And if you give them the opportunity, if you give them some of that autonomy, a bit of a sense of fun, the capability, the capacity to run at this, they absolutely run at it. The real reason why we are doing this is because our staff want us to, because our staff care about this and because our staff are doing it anyway. I guess what's what's kind of fascinating in some sense about that demand you know from the staff is with you know with a a global pandemic uh with all of the uh workforce constraints you know globally in healthcare uh with burnout being extremely topical that um despite all of those uh challenges uh climate and our responsibility to the climate is still uh right up there with uh with the priorities Uh, how has senior leadership taken on those you know in one framing could change the priority shifts around and say well we'll we'll get to this later you know recovering from COVID is is what we need to do how have leadership navigated that space can can I say and like this is an Australian saying some nice things about the British so I think we should you know we should take in the middle of the ashes as well we should take it um pretty seriously I've been so ridiculously impressed by the leadership at the NHS I like genuinely I I don't think I would believe myself if I told myself this a couple of years ago. Never once have I been told, Nick, we're going too fast. Now's not the time. We don't have the capacity. We need to focus on something else. The only question I ever get asked is, is this as fast as we can go? Can we do more? Can we go faster? I I think there was one time where I was trying to make the case for um, some investment in decarbonizing a part of the NHS. It was going to cost more money up front, but it was going to pay for itself in a very short period of time. And I got told, no, we just can't right now, mate. And I walked away feeling a bit grumpy about that. And about two hours later, I got a call and said, actually, do you know what? You're entirely right. This is the right thing to do on so many fronts. It's going to save us money. We're going to absolutely do this. Let's go for it. I, I am I am like so impressed by, by the leadership across the NHS. And I, I don't just mean that in 
sort of NHS England in the in the macro national leadership. I kind of mean that everywhere you look, everywhere you look, there is a chief executive. Yeah, sure. But there's just an angry, passionate nurse who says, Do you know what, I've got a really cool idea. I, there's, there's a nurse out um, in, in the Midlands, Louise is her first name. I'll leave the, I'll leave the rest out. But um, just thought, you know what, I reckon we could fit some solar panels on the roof of this hospital. Was told, oh, don't have the money. Said, I reckon I could crowdfund that. Was told, not quite sure you're actually allowed to do that. To which she said, you know what, I've already done it. And the response from the community was phenomenal. People loved it. Six, nine months later, there are solar panels all over the trust paid for from a community trust, saving so much money, hundreds of thousands of pounds every single year, and all of the savings that they have from that. She's made sure that they go and invest it back into patients over the age of 75, at risk of pneumonia, in fuel poverty in the winter, and making sure that they have low carbon, cheaper, better heating at home. It's like the best example of like leadership at all levels, uh, and the NHS is an anchor institution that I've ever heard of. You said something. You said something just before about this sort of perceived tension between workforce issues and uh, a pandemic that the world was responding to, and and healthcare professionals everywhere right at the front of that, and that maybe we could be forgiven if we were a little bit tired, a little bit busy, and couldn't take on one more thing, decarbonizing an entire healthcare system. It's really interesting. I don't actually think that is the way it is perceived by a lot of the clinicians across the system. Um, just to give you a little bit of an anecdote, um, we ran a micro grant scheme, 5,000 pounds, small amount of money. If you had a cool idea for something that would help you tackle climate change, directly improve the healthier patients, we were like happy to sort of help get going. We thought maybe we would get like 50, 60 applications in year one, because we agreed with the premise of what you're getting at, right? That like, it's been a tough year. This was last year, I think. We had to close applications after 48 hours because we had 7,000 come through. We had forgotten how much people love this stuff. In fact, I was talking to um, I was talking to someone in um in the national team uh, whose wife is a GP, and they came to me and they said, Nick, I hate these micro grant schemes. They're such a waste of time and money. And then they came to me about a week later and they said, Nick. My wife's a GP and she's just had her entire practice over all four of the GPs, all of their nurse practitioners, their nurses, their admin staff. They have just occupied my house, which was a pain, for the last six or seven hours, laughing, having fun, talking about the applications that they're going to put in to the to the micro grant scheme. And I have never once seen this group of people come together and really enjoy themselves and really come to life. Um, also, she would like to know, can they put five applications in? Is that okay? Like that sort of stuff, you just see examples of it everywhere you look. It's, it's, it's really cool. So it sounds like this is really baked into the, into the culture, this idea of taking initiative um, to, to innovate. How do you think that culture has been uh, fostered and how would you suggest maybe other systems or, or people working in other areas take, take some of those types of learnings and use them themselves? I don't want to make it seem as though we've cracked that nut, right? Like in some ways, what you're talking about is not specific to climate change. That's a critical part of, you know, living and breathing in a healthcare system. How do you enable clinicians and everyone to innovate, to take best practice, to spread it, you know, evenly? That, that stuff's tough. I, I think at the most macro level, 
I break it down into the, the three categories I've, I've talked about before. You got to make sure that people know that they have the autonomy to run at this, right? That, that everyone has permission to take a crack. And so for our part, we put it into national legislation, Health and Care Act of 2022, not asking nicely anymore, a good healthcare system, a good NHS trust runs at this and has a net zero strategy that is localized, has been engaged with their patients, with their communities, with their staff. You make sure that every single trust has uh, has has that strategy, but also has a board level lead, has a clinical lead, is starting to sort of you know show some visible leadership here. The second thing that matters is capability and capacity. People need a little bit of time, right? So we've had to set up fellowship schemes. We've got a couple of trusts across the country now that are starting to bake it into sort of quality improvement programs that are that are covered. They need a little bit of training on this stuff, and that is incredibly important. So we've created uh, really simple stuff. 30 minute training, uh, training sessions online that you can do. But if you're more interested in person, half day workshops, and if you're really interested, some senior leadership stuff that takes you through a course over six months, autonomy, capability, capacity matter, but like by far, and this is maybe a little bit of a theme by far having a bit of fun matters. Um, uh, whenever you look around any formula one track or rugby pitch or uh, parliament it is the team that is smiling and having fun and high-fiving that i would put my money on winning um, and it's so important that we make sure that this transition that is going to be long and hard and tough and we're going to make mistakes it's so important that we make sure that it's fun i think those three things together you mentioned costs before around you know sometimes that is something that it can be really underlined by people and be a be a really a big stopping point. I've heard you speak about how 80% of uh, some of these things can be cost neutral. I wondered if you could kind of un- unpack that because I can I can understand that at a at a high level, but what does it look like to to make these types of shifts? Sure, sure. So so very roughly and and I'll talk in a bit of generality, but let's have a couple of examples so that we can explain what we're talking about. We reckon we can run at, you're right, about 82% of the full emissions profile of the NHS without additional significant capital pressure. And just to like unpack what I'm talking about there, those emissions are emissions that come from the food that we serve our patients and our staff, or they come from the, the mobility aids that we, uh, that we send our patients home with, that our OTs and physios send our patients home with, or they come from the inhalers the drugs that our asthma nurses prescribe now we have a choice there we can choose where we get that food from and whether or not we source it from local seasonal uh, seasonal parts of the country that like better invest in local community and really create a proper link between the nhs as an anchor institution and that local community we can choose whether or not those mobility aids are attached to a recycling scheme where we take them back, we clean them up, we fix them up and we send them back out again to other patients when they need them. We can choose whether we are prescribing high carbon medicines that quite frankly, in almost every case are just worse for the patient um, or whether we are thinking seriously about other things around prevention, around social prescribing, around choosing alternatives that are better for our patients that are often cheaper and that are lower carbon. So we, it's that substitution agency that is is responsible for the 82% that I'm talking about there. There is, and I just, I don't want to, I don't want to make it seem as though there is no cost. There is a cost attached to this. That's the remaining 18% of those emissions profile. 
very roughly that is in our fixed and our mobile assets. Fixed assets are hospitals and clinics, buildings. The NHS uh, has about 65,000 buildings across the country, um, big. Uh, and you need to do a whole bunch of things there. You need to uh, have on-site renewable generation, solar panels on the roof. You need to decarbonize the heat. You need to electrify the heat, move to ground source, air source, heat pumps. You need to make sure that your buildings are energy efficient and properly ventilated as you go about that. You got a whole range of things there that you need to do. And at the same time, you need to electrify your fleet and you need to make sure that you have the charging infrastructure in place. We're the second largest fleet, second only to the postal service in this country. You have the charging infrastructure and then you've got to have uh, the upfront capital to purchase some of those vehicles. But just to break down very quickly, we think the total added pressure that this brings to tackle those remaining 18% of our emissions is about 7.7 billion pounds over the next 10 years. Now, for something the size of the NHS, that is not that big. That's good news that 770 million pounds a year is roughly what we're talking about here. What is even better is everything I just talked about there, on-site renewable generation, electric vehicles, um, energy efficiency across our GP practices and our hospitals. All of that stuff saves money. And in fact, when you add all of that stuff up, we think the average return on investment for every pound that we have spent into this space is about 3.6 years. It pays for itself like almost nothing else in healthcare. It's one of the best bets you can make. Um, and so I, that, that's what's behind that. And there is a myth out there that, oh, I would do this, but it's too expensive or it's gonna cost too much money. Nonsense, certainly not our experience. This leads me on to how the rest of the world is looking to pick up the mantle and, and uh, challenge the NHS's um, uh, front running and uh, how they are addressing um, their climate emissions as well. I wondered if you could talk to, you know, who else is getting involved? I see that in the US, the Department of Health and Human Services has a health sector pledge with over 100 organizations who've, who've signed up. So in some sense, it sounds like, you know, the momentum globally is, is really starting to pick up. What are your sort of views there? We are, the NHS is, was the first healthcare system in the world to start to run at this properly, to properly develop the policy architecture, the funding to make our net zero commitment and start to measure and demonstrate reductions annually. And very, very quickly, everyone else started to catch up and you're entirely right they're starting to compete with us and bring it on like let's have let's have a little bit of fun here i kind of love the idea of trying to see just how low carbon we can be relative to the team that john runs at hhs in the united states they kick ass there's a big team now being formed down in france in germany a new federal ministry being created new federal department within the health ministry being being created we've just lost one or two of our staff here in the nhs back down to Australia, because there's a new team being set up in Canberra. There are teams being set up in each state. Everywhere you look, healthcare systems are starting to run at this. I actually uh, made a little bit of a flippant comment, like, come on, let's compete the other, a few months ago um, on a call. Uh, <laughs> I should have checked who was listening, but um, uh, only a few weeks ago, um, someone said, Nick, I was on that call. Um, someone from the Norwegian uh, health department. I was on that call. And we've gone and taken a look at some of the things that you guys have done on uh, inhaler decarbonization and switching and some of your other work in medicines. Take a look at this press release. We're going twice as fast as you. Had someone else from the French Department of Health say, we think the work you guys are doing 
on your sustainable supplier roadmap, the NHS has said within the decade, we will no longer purchase from anyone that doesn't meet or exceed our commitments on net zero. The French said, we think that's so impressive. We're so impressed by, especially that 10% weighting that you guys put into your tenders. You did that just a year ago. Have you seen that we just put in 30% weighting towards net zero? And like, I just love the idea that we are starting to have a bit of fun with this, starting to um, compete. Yeah, I, I think when I start to look out around the world um, and start to see how seriously big, big, big actors, you know, healthcare is 10 12% of sort of global GDP, big actors are starting to engage with this. I, I start to get this sense of not just like a fun, nice to have, but an ine inevitability. There's real momentum here that would be hard to stop even if you tried. And what do you look for in a good pledge? I know offsets can be uh, used in various types of ways. What what, what would you say is, is a pledge that is... Um, kind of holding uh, the right type of accountability? I love it. This is my favorite question in the world because it's so important that we get a little bit more carbon literate as we start to run at this because there's so much nonsense out there, so much greenwashing. I've actually started to hear the word health washing, which I like. kind of love actually. I think if people are going to say things and make commitments that we don't really believe, we should call them on it. Number one, your scopes matter. It's a little geeky, but there's something called the Greenhouse Gas Protocol um, it is a way of classifying emissions. That stuff is a little bit hard to figure out, though it's all very publicly available. But the answer to that is extremely simple. Anyone that isn't capturing 100% of their emissions, and by that I mean scope one, scope two, scope three, both domestically and internationally, anyone that isn't doing that, I think we should look at their commitment. We should stand up and say, you're lying to us. That's inadequate. That was a commitment that was acceptable in the 1990s and the world has moved on. So I think the scope matters a lot. You talk about offsets. Listen, absolute zero is obviously a physical impossibility. There's carbon everywhere. There's carbon in life, right? So you're going to have to have a degree of negative emissions. The question is not, are offsets a good or a bad thing? The question is, what level is permissible? Very, very roughly, the world has settled on the idea that anything above 10% is not permissible. So anyone that tells you that they are able to run at this and that they've actually managed to already be net zero, they are obviously only doing that through extreme levels of offsets. And I think we should only allow uh, anything below 10%. To count, I think we should also, frankly, not really be allowing offsets to account in our emissions reduction targets today. The way we should be thinking about offsets are first you mitigate, then you mitigate some more, then you reduce your emissions even more, then you take a break, then you come back and having thought about it for a bit, you find another five ways to reduce your emissions. And then after 10, 15, 20 years, are you allowed to think about the negative side about, uh, about offsetting your emissions profile? So I think those two things matter probably the most. Speed, obviously, um, got to have something before 2050, got to be as quick, frankly, as you can possibly go. We always say about the NHS emissions targets, when people say, hey, do you think you're going to meet it? We say 50-50. They were set to be right on the cusp of what we thought was possible, but also moving fast enough. And the second that we think that we are definitely going to hit it, we'll just move the target forward. We'll start to make it harder because we have to be running as fast as we can. So I think those, those three things probably matter in terms of the setting of the target. There's just one more thing that I just want to, sorry, you touched on a bit of a nerve, make sure we bring up which is 
Setting a target is easy and boring. It's so easy to point out at something in 2045, 2050, whatever, and say, oh, I'll be over there by then. I'll see you there in 20 years. We also need to make sure that when someone makes one of those commitments, we are watching them like hawks and we are watching them publicly. And we are saying, you made that commitment one year on. I want you to tell me who is your director of sustainability or chief sustainability officer. Who have you hired? Who are you making, bringing in to make sure that you have the capacity at an appropriately senior level to run at this? Have they got the team they need? Is that team funded? Are you going to annually publish your emissions reduction? And I want to see that publicly so that we can assess whether or not you're there. And if anyone says, no, I haven't got there yet after a year, I think we can look at them sort of, you know, a little bit grumpily and say, all right, fine. And if after two years they haven't got there, I think we have to look at them. And this applies to healthcare systems right the way around the world. We have to look at them and say, okay, well, your commitment back there is clearly null and void. You were clearly lying to us back then. Not good enough. Um, I, we're going to get so much grumpier when it comes to this kind of stuff. I have one last question and you've kind of answered a little bit. I was going to say, you know, what can an individual clinician do working in a healthcare system? But in some sense, you've you've kind of highlighted that sending an email to the CEO or, or someone in the senior leadership to, to ask a few of these questions, you know, what is our approach and where are we going to next and perhaps how, how I can help? Uh, do you have any additional thoughts on, on what, you know, one person could do uh, tomorrow? So there's, there's like a little bit of a paradox in, um, in sustainability where we, you sit there going, oh my, climate change is caused by colossal amounts of energy being released into the atmosphere, roughly the equivalent of eight, nine atomic bombs worth of energy released into the atmosphere every single second of every single minute, hour, day for a century. It's huge. What the hell could just one person do? And yet, I think when I look across the NHS, almost all of our victories have come from one passionate clinician who stood up and said, hey, I'm going to calculate myself as part of a quality improvement program, the emissions of this and the emissions of that, and I'm going to realize that drug B is better than drug A, and I'm going to start to change my practice, and then my clinic's practice, and then the hospital's practice, and then eventually it scales out and it catches on like wildfire. I think the most important thing, the single most important action anyone can take quite frankly, is the action they're actually going to take. I wouldn't worry too much about trying to think of the biggest thing that any individual can do. I think we should think about the thing that we're actually going to do at 9am tomorrow morning. And then the day after that, what are you going to do the next 9am and the day after that and the day after that, you can take a break if it's Saturday. And then maybe you do two things the next week, right? But it's, it's about sort of slowly building that thing up. It doesn't massively matter what it is. There's absolutely something that we uniquely are, are in charge of in our professional lives. I would make sure I find friends as I do it. I would remember that statistic and I bet you the NHS isn't alone. Nine in 10 staff want to work for an organization that tackles climate change. Nine in 10 of your colleagues, nine in 10 of your friends want to do this with you. And I think I would send that email to the chief executive or to whoever's in charge of sustainability. And I would ask two things. What are we doing on this talk to me a little bit about it and how can i help i wouldn't criticize if we're not moving fast enough if we're not quite at the point where we're capturing all the scopes if we think we're offsetting a little bit too much look we should be a bit grumpy about that but first we should ask hey how can i help how can i take this forward i bet you i promise you somewhere in your hospital somewhere in your clinic there is a sustainability manager somewhere 
who would love a friend who is a clinician who is happy to work with them on this and would I promise you when you walk through the door say thank god you're here let's get going we got to focus on the stuff we can do together at 9am tomorrow morning I think that's a perfect place for us to stop. Uh, Dr. Nick Watts, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a fantastic conversation. And also, particularly, thank you so much for the work that you're doing at the NHS. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. It's been good fun. And that brings us to the end of the podcast. If you want to go deeper about any of these topics or join the discussion, visit our website, clinicalchangemakers.com. Now, one small ask. This is a brand new podcast. So if you enjoyed our work, please rate us and share it with your friends and colleagues. Until next time, take care.